This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 56. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 56 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Audio Technica, Universal Audio, and Focal Monitors. Welcome, welcome. So uh, number 56, I'd say we're going to have a great guest on. That's my prediction. We're going to have on Josh Roberts. Once again, tapping into the friend pool, if you will, Josh Roberts is one of the owners of Santo Studios in Oakland, California. Kind of sticking close to home these days with the with the podcast. There's some really good people here that I have yet to talk to, and Josh Roberts is one of them. Yeah, Josh Roberts coming up. We'll be over at Santo Studios for the interview. That's coming up. Now, of course, NAM is coming up. And speaking of our sponsors and everything that's going on, NAM is taking place. Let's see, it's taking place January 21st through January 24th. And I will be there. I'll make it official now. I will be Thursday, I will be at the Focal booth interviewing Mr. Jim Scott. And if you don't know who Jim Scott is, I'm just sitting here staring in amazement at this guy's body of work. Uh, Jim has worked with the Dixie Chicks, Tom Petty, Sting, The Rolling Stones, Roger Daltrey, Crowded House, Seven Worlds Collide, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, he uh, you might have seen Jim in the uh, Sound City movie with Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. So um, come on by the Focal booth. Uh, looks like right now the time is 2 p.m. Once again, I will confirm and I will put it on the website. So if you have any question, just go to the website and I will make a post there and you will see that. So yeah, come by. There'll be a live audience. We can see each other. It'll be about an hour. So, you know, the conversation will be quick and I'm sure that time will just fly by, unfortunately. And, you know, it's very easy to get going on a, on a great conversation with somebody like Jim Scott. So I look forward to it. I look forward to it. So yeah, come on by at the uh, Focal booth. When I am at NAM and we do the the thing at the Focal booth with Jim, if you miss it, no big deal. I'll be floating around to the different booths. I'll be over at the Universal Audio booth and I'll be at the Audio Technica booth. I'll be floating around all those different booths. And if you want to come up and say hi and you're like, oh, is, you know, is he going to freak out if I go and say hi? I'm not. Just come on up and pat me on the shoulder and go, hey, Matt, I'm so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. So I love to love to to meet the listeners. That really, really is that's pretty cool. I got to say, when I go to these different towns and I have coffee with different people and talk about the show and talk about what they're doing, that's I don't know. I just I feed off of the stories and the information that the that all of you out there have about your own personal recording experiences. So it's really good for me. So um, yeah, there we go. Want to make sure and mention, speaking of Universal Audio, you know they are having their, and I got to go over to their website. I, I haven't committed it all to memory, but I know that they have a new uh, deal going on that I want to tell you about. I'm going to tell you about it right now. Here we go. Look, see, I click on the, on the link. I take a sip of coffee. Mm, and there it is. You buy a UAD2 Octo Accelerator and you get an API Studer and Manly plugins. You get API Studer and Manly plugins for free. Deal's good for the next three months. So, well, it's good until March 31st, depending on when you're listening to this. March 31st, 2016. So I don't want to mislead you there. If you go over to the uh, UA website, there's a little, <laughs> what am I trying to say? There's a little link there that you uh, click on and that'll take you over to a page. It'll tell you all about it. If you already own those plugins, there's no big deal. They'll just give you a single-use coupon of equal value to the plugins you already own at, at the product registration. So very, very low hassle situation. You just buy the stuff, and there you are. You're all set up with your uh, your free plugins from UA. So um, not much is going on except that. Just planning on NAM, and I can't wait to uh, to meet a bunch of people that listen to the show and hang out, see new products. Very exciting, very exciting. So, hey, let's just get into it here with uh, Mr. Josh Roberts over at Santo Studios here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Awesome, dude. Thanks for being here. Hi, Matt. 
So we're here at Santos Studios with Josh Roberts. Hello. And uh, Josh and I have known each other for since what, 94, 93? Yeah. Yep. Early 90s for sure. And we originally met because you you were road managing and doing front of house for a band I was in mm-hmm. at the time called Seven Day Diary. Yep. Let's yeah. talk about where mm-hmm. we're at right now. Santos Studios. Tell me about that. Well, Santo came about, it was pretty roundabout. I've actually been involved in a couple of different studios with Matt in the past. One of those was winding down in San Francisco, which was Broken Radio, and that was a beautiful room. And as that was winding down, I took my pile of gear, which is this Trident that I bought in the early 90s. I think I bought it in 95, actually. Mm-hmm. And my two-inch tape machine, and I put the stuff in the basement. And I was like, you know, still doing some work here and there at other people's places. I was kind of cleaning out my two-inch tape stock, you know, I gave everybody some notice and had a few hundred reels of two-inch tapes. And so I took a bunch of stuff down to uh, Urban Ore to donate. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a fella there and he said, uh, have you done this before? And I said, yeah, I brought a load in the other day and I've been waiting to hear back from people to make sure that I don't give away any tapes that anybody still needs. And he said, well, you got a studio? And I said, well, I, I work in studios, but I don't right now. And he said, well, I'm I got a studio. <laughs> and and I so said, it begins again. And I said, so what kind of recording medium you got there? And he said, well, you know, it's not really entirely clear. And I was like, oh, well, I've got a two-inch machine that works pretty good. Why don't I come see your place? That was Santo in the first incarnation, which was about a mile from here. It's more downtown Oakland. So I met Christopher. Within a really short amount of time, we threw our lot in together and became partners. He's a really solid guy. I can't say enough about how happy I am with the layout of where we're at now. So Mm -hmm. what happened with the progression of that place was I came in. Christopher's a novice engineer, but he's been in a lot of bands over the last 20 years, made a lot of records and has fantastic ears. So I kind of came in and upped the engineering capabilities of the studio, built a patch bay, stuffed my two-inch machine in there, stuffed the Trident in there. It was a small, fairly limited room. It was like an old construction business and it was their warehouse Mm-hmm. And it was a long rectangle with a control room at one end. And it was fine. We made it sound pretty good, actually. Sort of out of the blue, the people who owned that building showed up one day and said, well, there's been this thing that's been floating for like 20 years, and it's like a 2% chance of ever happening. The city of Oakland bought our block to raise everything there and build low-income senior housing. And I couldn't really complain about that because I was like, well, that's rad. Oakland needs that. Yeah. But they booted us. So we got 90 days. The city city has a relocation program for businesses, so they cut us a modest check, which got us into this building. It got us a lease signed. We've got a five-year lease here. And then we started working. It turned out that we had to completely gut the building. We didn't realize that when we first... I mean, we were basically in a panic because we had nowhere to go, and it was down to the final days of, like, can we bother to make this happen or not. We were considering just chopping up the check and putting it in our pocket and calling it a day and putting the gear back in the basement kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But then we found this spot and it was an auto shop and it was really, really funky. We had to completely renovate the whole building. Everything in here, this was an empty room. I mean, we made it an empty room after we demoed it. We had some help from a a construction expert who really put a lot of sweat and made this place go. A guy named Paul Frank, really good friend. Without him, we never would have made it. But none of us are construction crew guys. So we built all this stuff, but it's kind of, it's not really half-ass, but we're not construction pros. So when it comes time to build a wall with all the proper standoffs and all the sound isolation and all that, you know, there I am on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Like the rest of the country. How do you do it with a resilient channel wall with a XYZ? Right. Um, So it took us a long time. It was slow to build this place. Just kind of going back to the Mm -hmm. Oakland thing and then buying you out, a relocation program for businesses. Mm -hmm. Did you have to be a legitimate business? We did not. Uh. We did not. We did not have a business license at that time in that business. It was sort of flying under the radar and let's get in and get up and running and see how it goes and then we'll see what develops. We were renting it out part-time as a rehearsal studio to help cover the rent, just kind of making it happen. We made a few records there to mixed results. You know, that room was nowhere near as nice as this room as far as sounds. We wondered for a minute and then we went through the just reams of paperwork for all the guidelines of all the things that you have to do to qualify for some relocation funding. Something that the city of Oakland has that's really cool is they have an office and a dude and his secretary 
who advocate for businesses. He takes a very small cut out of whatever settlement the city hands over, so he makes money off of doing it. But he's an expert at knowing the details that are required. So we had a meeting with him. He said, yeah, you guys are not really that traditional because your you know, chain of receipts is not going back 10 years and you don't work with a trucking company or something where you have regular bookkeeping. You guys are a little bit out of the norm, but I'm going to make this work for you. He really liked us personally. Hmm. He came in, had a cool identification, looked through some of our records, found some records that he'd listened to in the 60s. He was just a really nice guy. He totally made it happen for us. So that was a unique situation. And we were real straightforward and really appreciative and really helped him out, getting all the paperwork that he needed together. And we had to jump through quite a few hoops. So speaking of jumping through hoops, yeah. when you got to this building, I think I remember a conversation with you. You said that there was a car parked in here? Well, uh, <laughs> back in our little patio, there was two Volkswagens jammed in out there. This building was filled with cars. Right here where we're at in the control room right now was the hydraulic lift thing to lift cars. So we had to chop that out of the cement floor. And each one of those tubes weighs like a quarter of a ton or something. So we we hooked a chain hoist onto them, tipped them over onto the back of a pickup truck. It almost smashed the pickup truck, drove them across the street, and they're at the auto shop across the street now. <laughs> Were you able to sell those to them or did no, you No, they them- belonged to the dude who was here. And oh. he, he parked them over in the place across the street because they needed a lift. And now he occasionally works out of that place. His name is Siwa. His name's out on the front of the building. He moved into a van with his tools and he still works out front of this building right in front and repairs people's cars. On the street? On the street because wow. his phone number and name is still outside on the front of the building. So he just gives this address as his business address. <laughs> hey, Siwa, what's up? What are you working on today, buddy? Wow. Oh, not too bad, my friend. Good to see you. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a make do neighborhood, man. Wow. <laughs> that's that's very uh yeah. That's a that's inventive. It was it was it was a trip. It was a trip. You had a lot of work to do here. Oh my god. I had no idea. I, I haven't done construction in years. I built a cabin one time when I was in my 20s that was small and it came out nice, but it's really hard. My hands were just beat to death for almost a year. So it took us about 10 months of work before we were able to run our first session. And the first couple sessions were, you know, we kind of made it, but there still needed to be a lot of work done. And there's still an enormous punch list of things. Our ISO booth doesn't have doors on it. So we just put up gobos and a curtain and and it it works. But like, I'm so loath to get back in construction mode. I'm totally staying away from it. It's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. And, you know, because we built it, we know all the ins and outs of it. We know where the problems are. Just aesthetically, it's kind of like a mid-century modern kind of vibe mixed with like this kind of urban industrial vibe. Right. It's also got a little hunting lodge going on. It does have a little hunting lodge. I feel like I'm at the Elks Lodge. <laughs> right. Like, I'm, uh, yeah, it's super cool in that way. And I think part of Sorry. the deal is it could be a client. That's true. I uh, hope you had a great holiday season. Oh, session's coming up. Blah, blah, blah. Ah. Oh, this is awesome. This is somebody who keeps texting me from the 707 and asking if they could sit in on or assist on some sessions, but I don't know who it is. <laughs> They're not telling me who they are. So I've just kind of been. So that's igno- a lesson. I've been ignoring them. That's a lesson. When you send a text. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you, Cole? Yeah. That's a lesson. Oh, is that from you? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lesson. If you're going to send out text messages to engineers introduce or yourself. heads of studios, maybe identify In- yourself. Introduce yourself. Yep. People are pretty casual with texts. And obviously, it's someone that I know. My number is in their phone. Nevertheless, I know a lot of people and... <laughs> That's the way it goes. It's now like three deep, so I can't go back and say, who is this at this point? <laughs> Well, did you respond? No, I didn't respond oh. the first time. Well, yeah, you can. I think it's not. I don't think it's too late. That's kind of embarrassing at this point, <laughs> though, right? So this, I just wanted to highlight. So yeah. Christopher works at Urban Ore. He does, yes. And, and and that, for those that don't know what Urban Ore is. Oh, it's just a, a gigantic re- recycling business. So I think that working there, he sees a lot of things that form his aesthetic. He's got a fantastic sense. Even before he ever worked at Urban Ore, he's been in the vintage business, the clothing business, and he's got a great eye. If you walk around his house, his brother does as well. I think it runs in that family. They just have cool taste. Yeah. And that's always been something that has been really a premium for me is figuring out how to make a studio the place you want to hang out. And we have done that here. 
I feel really proud of that. On nights when we're not booked, we've been booked a lot, actually, lately. December and January are really busy. But on nights when we're not booked, we'll have a dinner here or just have a little cocktail party and show a movie for the kids because people are so happy and comfortable here. And that's not a normal recording studio. No, it's Recording not. studios don't have that kind of vibe. They don't. And it is like just hanging out in here. The look of everything, the, mm-hmm. the vibe, the feeling makes me want to come and record here. Right. Which is be- obviously the goal. Of course. We want to be making records. Right now we're making budget records for Oakland. The records are coming out really good. The sound in the room is fantastic. We got really lucky in that respect. Basically... We did the design. Nobody in our crew is an acoustician. I'm not, but I've had my finger in close to half a dozen studios now. Some have worked well and some, you know, there's been some mistakes. Literally, I think seven or eight days before we started construction, before we started to lay out the walls in here, I practically on a bar napkin completely changed the whole layout of the studio. The control room was set to be in that corner Mm -hmm. and this long slot was going to be the Mm playroom. I was just up nights thinking about different options. I went to everybody and I said, you know, I feel pretty strongly about this. It it was all sort of a a, a big co-opocracy. Like everybody's voice was an equal voice and everybody needed to be heard with their ideas about how to build things. Paul would always bring us back to reality when we're like, well, I want to do this over there. And he's like, yeah, well, you got to build that. So XYZ number of boards costs XYZ (laughs) number of dollars. And we're like, oh shit. Yeah, right, right. So Paul was awesome as far as that went. He, he, he just fantastic. Just so I'm clear, how many people are involved here? Christopher and I are equal partners. Okay. Paul didn't ask for any form of partnership at all. Okay. He just did it out of the goodness of his heart. He likes to make people's dreams come true. He works a full-time job for the UC system. He would just show up after work and bust ass for hours (laughs) and weekends. It was incredible. So what happened was we got right up to the crux of it. We're ready to start laying out walls. And I said, hey, I feel really strongly about this. Basically, our, our, our folks who were building here, which was mostly Christopher and Paul and I, and then occasionally anybody else who could swing a hammer, they just shook their head and they're like, oh God, really? We've already got our layout. Are you sure? And I'm like, oh, I really, I'm really in on this one. I really want it to, there's reasons why it should go the other way. So like, okay, cool. They're like, fine, you, you, at least as far as studio layout, no more than the other folks here. So I'm like, okay, great. And damn, was I nervous. I was so scared because- Were you scared to be wrong? Yeah, I was scared that there would be a mistake. I was terrified. That happened. And then six months later, we're still working. And I'm even more scared because we haven't done a session. And I'm like, this whole layout is my idea. And if it sucks, I blew it. We've poured every penny we have into this place. Christopher and I are both absolutely broke, Uh trying to make it go. The money from Oakland is long gone. We still need more materials. We still need more nails, more glue, more doors. We're making it happen, trying to do some sessions for a hundred bucks here, a hundred bucks there. I was really nervous. You were nervous, but how is morale with everybody else? Every once in a while, uh, I felt I felt like I was asking for some things that I knew would be good for the audio aspect. That as far as builders, you know, Paul was like, geez, do we really have to make the floor in the control room a foot deep? And I'm like, well, it's an elevated control room. It can't have any resonance. We really do. So we worked for a month on the floor of this room. And it sounds fantastic in here. So again, I don't really know what the actual math is for doing this stuff. I just went like, well, it's got to be really thick and really heavy. You know, so there's one inch ply and there's there's so much wood. It literally is I think 14 and a half inches thick. And so the people who are building are like, Jesus, dude, we've worked on this floor for a month. Isn't it solid enough? And I'm like, no, we got to get under there and put some more cross bracing in because I feel like when you jump up and down, there's resonance. So, you know, there was that aspect of me saying, I'm really going to push to to get these things that I feel are important. And we made it through and everybody were absolute troopers. You know, they trusted in, in when I would say something is important, they said, okay, well, we'll do it. And we built this floor for a month and everybody was tired of this floor. But you know, but it's solid. At the end of the day, and it's beautiful. These these boards, um, they they have square nails in them, and they stopped making square nails for construction in the twenties. So these boards, which we reclaimed from the loft that we ripped out over there, and we hand planed these things. Christopher and I worked so hard on these. That's another funny story. Everybody said, "Oh my God, it's going to be so hard to plane those boards down for this floor. You guys are stupid. Let's just do something different. Find some other flooring." And I was like, "I really want to use those boards." And so Christopher and I totally treated it like like totally casually. 
We're like, oh, it's no problem. We're just going to plane those things down and a couple of days of work and we'll be ready to go. We'll lay them in. They run the whole length of the floor. They're 14 feet long. Two weeks? About 12 days of working so hard to plane these boards down. Yeah. Oh, my God. We wore out a planer. <laughs> we're, we're just sweating like mad. These huge boards are out in the floor and it's so loud. We've got head muffs on and hats and breathing. And the dust is flying. And it was insanely loud. Christopher forgot his ear protection one day. And uh, it was a huge mistake. He thought he'd like really damaged his hearing. But it turned out to be okay. I mean, he recovered from it. But it was really hard work. And we were trying to be really casual about it because we didn't want everybody else to go, like, I told you so. Why didn't we use some different wood? <laughs> And again, at the end of the day, people come in here and they're like, holy crap, where did you get these beams? Well, they were part of the loft. 12 hardworking days of doing planing. Oh my God. But it looks beautiful. It's it's awesome. Yeah. So at the end of the day, the touches in here, we really did work extremely hard on and went the extra mile and got the extra stuff that we needed, special trim boards, some whatever. All the wood in here is pretty unique and really cool. We have really worked super hard through local sort of pickers and people who do estate sales. Christopher has cultivated a big network of those kind of people. And they just come to him and say, I got a truckload of stuff. What do you need? Wow. Say, well, hundred bucks and I'm taking a half of your truckload of stuff. Here's a weird table and some legs that came off of something. And Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in everything. It's like the, yeah. the diffuser on the back wall. The leather yeah, uh, on the trident. The leather on the trident right here. Christopher's brother Billy Sprague made that in trade and he hand lettered it. Every one of these cuts, he knocked it in by hand and he did such a good job on it. It's amazing. It is amazing. And yeah. the wood and some of the artwork with the human ear poster up here. And yeah. it's just it's a fun place to be. All right. I hope you're enjoying our interview here with Mr. Josh Roberts of Santo Studios. Going to take a little uh, break here to mention one of our sponsors here, Audio Technica. As you know, we did those samples, which I got to be honest with you, I've totally dropped the ball. I haven't completely put all the drum samples up, and I know everybody's waiting on me. And I'm like, uh, sorry. So I will finish that. But um, there are some other samples up there of some 40 series mics on acoustic guitar, uh, on uh, electric guitar, and on voice, male voice. And what we're going to do is we're going to do another round of samples. We're going to do kind of a kind of a comparison between the AT2035, the AT5040, and uh, the AT4047, and we'll post those. And we're probably going to do some video with that as well, most likely, so you can uh, get a glimpse into that process. And... Uh, That'll give you, you know, just an idea of three differently priced mics. One, you know, kind of low priced, mid priced, high priced. That's always good to hear. Just to just getting the facts about different mics, in terms of, uh, you know, does high price mean it sounds better? Well, it depends, and it depends on what you're going to use it on. It depends on your budget, and you know, we like to be budget budget conscious, I should say. So, yeah, look forward to that coming up. Probably in the next couple of weeks, we'll we'll try to put that put that together. We got to head on over back to uh, Bird and Egg Studios with uh, Mr. Nino Michella, get our team together, James Meter, Cole Williams, and myself, and uh, that's it. So let's get back into our talk here with Josh Roberts of Santo Studios here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. In terms of the uh, the economics of it, you're you're not in a really expensive area, right? So your rent is able to be it's your modest. Re your rent is modest. Therefore, your rates are incredibly modest. They are right now. Yeah. Yes, yeah, they're two hundred a day for the room. Mm -hmm. As in any place, we have a spectrum of engineers. We have some younger, greener engineers that'll work for one hundred and fifty bucks a day. We have some old, tired engineers who charge substantially who you more. Tired? <laughs> I made it here, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Got out of bed. But yeah, we're charging 200 a day for the room. We're booked a lot, I believe, I because you of that. You know, we're, we're doing that to sort of make a footprint. We want to be making records for Oakland. You know, at this point in time, there's very, there's a limited number of bands around here that are local Oakland bands that have a budget from a label. There's a few, and we've gotten a little piece of that. But, um, 
you know, budgets are what they are. It's the same thing that everybody says. So realistically, everybody has been saving and scrimping for a year to um, figure out how to pay for their project. So they come in here with a few thousand dollars to make a record. And we want to make sure that they're really happy when they leave. Our rates are really modest. You know, we will reach a point in the future where our rates will have to go up. Right now, financially, it's very difficult for my partner and I to make what we need to considering what our investment was here. Yeah. And that's okay as long as we can scrimp by. But at some point, we'll want to turn that corner and raise the rates a little bit. We also need to stay competitive. We, we have a niche here as a mid-price, real nice, fun-to-work-in place. And that's this place is never going to be more than that. You know, with the noise floor, we're next door to a laundromat. And if mm-hmm. you put a really good condenser mic up, you can hear some rumble. And every once in a while, a car or truck will drive by out front. And that's an no interesting... One's blown, no one's blown a take yet, though. That's interesting in terms of just like studio expectations. Yeah. And setting expectations. You know, some people expect studios to be, you know, hermetically sealed right. laboratory environments where right. as others really like a kind of rough and tumble, cool vibe right. kind of place. And there's obviously all kinds of studios that are on either end of those spectrums and Absolutely. everywhere in between. Do you ever have clients that come in and go, well, what was that sound? Yes. We have had a few clients. There's a, a guy who keeps approaching us. I'm not sure why he has difficulty finding a room in which to record, but he's an operatic baritone. Mm-hmm. He's a German guy. He really likes the room, but his engineer is not real happy with the level of unhermetically sealedness we have here. <laughs> this place is pretty loose at the end of the day. Yeah. He's been back and forth a few times. Uh, one time I think he was in a pinch and he wanted to come in, but we couldn't accommodate him uh, schedule-wise. A couple other times, his engineer, he brings all his own stuff. He just needs the room. So he came in just saying in different parts of the room, his baritone operatic voice, I'm guessing, is going about 103 decibels. It shook the walls. It was unbelievable. This dude's voice was outrageous. So that's one client. Mostly, though, we let people know right up front. It's a pretty loose place. It's kind of a rock and roll studio, you know? Basically, the noise floor, if there's any amplified instrument at all, whether even if it's a direct bass or whatever, the noise floor of some type of pickup or amplification more than squashes everything. Basically, nobody has even commented yeah. about any of those issues of the fact that you can stand in the in the playroom and if it's real quiet, you can hear some stuff. Sure. You know, we had uh, Carl Durfler, a really experienced local engineer in uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually just before Christmas. When he called to do a little pre-pro phone conversation, I just said, you know, it's a pretty loose place. Don't expect double doors on the control rooms that are magnetic and hermetically sealed. He came in with such a good attitude about it. And he just said, this is the kind of place to make great records. This is fun, a fun place to work. It's super modestly priced. And uh, he's like, I love this type of stuff. And, and this is Carl, who's worked with Tom Waits and and Dave Matthews. I mean, his, his resume is off the charts. Yeah. He has consistently made five or six outstanding records every year going back 30 years. It's frustrating on one level that studios, price-wise, have to stay priced at prices that really do not keep up with inflation and cost of living, really. It's all kind of out of whack. But then again, it kind of gives you an opportunity to be a little loose where you That's true. where you can afford to be and still attract clients and, st- and still do a professional job. Right. Yeah, it's hard. I, I struggle with that conversation, as I'm sure you do. It's a highly detailed and really complex job that you do as an engineer. There's so much going on when you're running a session with 20, 25 open mics. There's a lot of stuff to think about. I went to engineering school in the 80s. Where'd you go? I, have, I went to college for recording arts, huh. which became, uh, who's the guy who reclaims all of the, uh, he was in uh, your spot for a while before Phil, before it became totally he was a oh, coast uh, Dan Alexander. Dan Alexander. Okay, okay. Dan Alexander took over that room when College for Recording Arts went out of business. But it was run by a guy named Leo Kolka, whose son is still in the business of doing electronic repair in L.A. and apparently is really good. Hmm. So anyway, I went to a year-long vocational school. I have a lot of experience. I have 30 years of practical experience. Some days I'm really good at this job. Not always, but some days. Every once in a while, I find myself working for what's pretty close to the minimum wage in Emeryville, which is 15 bucks an hour. Yeah. Boy, that's uh, that's not really looking for cost of inflation <laughs> over a 30-year career. Do you charge hourly or by the day? It depends on the client. I like to charge by the day. 
Yeah. And I like to work an eight hour day. Most of our other engineers here call a day a 10 hour day. They're younger. And <laughs> I, I feel like <laughs> don't for have me, children. <laughs> right. They don't have kids. But I feel like for me that I'm on point and I'm productive for an eight hour day with a little lunch break. A 10 hour day, I feel like those last two hours, having done this for a long time, the productivity that happens in those last two hours on a 10 hour day is nowhere near what it is somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. You know, it falls off pretty substantially just from the band. They don't practice for 10 hours. And so the concentration level is really hard to maintain. Although I will have to say that Carl Durfler, when he came in with uh, Adam, one of the members of Two Gallants is making a solo record here. And they worked 13 hour days and they were on point. Wow. They were highly on point. If somebody had a minute when someone else was doing an overdub, that person was over here looking at charts and practicing a part for the next thing. Absolutely. He just ran a flawless session. I was really impressed. And they put in long hours. We came to tear down his session at 1030 on the last day of their of their booking. And they were still recording. And we sat around for about 45 minutes while they finished up a piano piece till, you know, close to 1130 at night. And then we tore everything down and it was a big teardown. So we were, we were out here pretty late. Do you think his session ran on point because of his leadership? Both. And or the, because and of the, the, band, the band. And the, and the band's professionalism and, uh-huh. and focus. Okay. Not all bands have that focus. They don't have that capacity. And not all engineers have that leadership quality. Right. Carl was just, uh, he was an inspiration. You know, he's been at it a long time and he was just re- so positive, just amazing. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that's an interesting thing. You know, I see that in a lot of engineers, younger engineers, especially in the live sound world, which I also have a, a bunch t- of That's how we met, right. Yeah. There's, there's an aspect about sort of having a shitty attitude or having a, I'm too cool for this kind of attitude as opposed to a really like, let's get in there and get the work done and make sure everybody is cool and happy with the product, whether it's a live mix or whatever. Yeah. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if it comes from people not paying dues or it's just a change in people's mentality or how people are socially these days compared to, you know, I mean, I'm literally comparing it to probably 20 years ago when I was in the live game and doing 200, 250, sometimes 300 live shows a year. I always worked really hard to make sure that the band, when they left, whether they were on the road or whether they were local, went home saying, damn, that was a good night. And man, that house guy, he was great. Love to come back here. Like that's really important to me. There's nothing that made me happier, whether it's a studio session or a live session, than somebody that's an important part of that show, whether it's the lead musician or whoever it is, at the end of the night, just saying, good job. All I ever wanted. Yeah. I love to hear that. The ability to stay positive and focused and quickly be able to figure out, like, what role do these people want me to play? Right. Do they want me to lead? Do they want me to kind of go along for a ride? That's always a challenge. And if you're not a flexible personality or you think you're the smartest person in the room at every turn, you're doomed. You're, you're going to lose. It's just yeah. not going to work. That's exactly right, is is psychologically being rigid and not being able to read and adapt to what is needed on that session or at that gig is a really hard way to get through doing what you're doing. And every once in a while, you have to compromise. People are asking more than you're comfortable for. But generally, if people are asking for your input, they don't do it clearly. Like you said, you've got to read between the lines a lot of times. I learned that in school, actually. I had a psychology course with a teacher named Paul Brusek. It was the most important class that I took at at engineering school. And it was just a psych 101 class. He was like, you know, 80% of making good records is figuring out how to get the band happy. And then, of course, you have to have the red light on. That's been like my credo for my career is figuring out how to begin with to create a space that they can do that. And then to be the person who furthers that just with my own psychological ability to read people and encourage them in a way that's not glad handing, but is really effective. You know, what's going to work? And man, like you said, that that just crosses so many different boundaries in so many different directions. People need so many different things. Has your experience as as a dad influenced how this works for you? Oh, I love to yell at clients a lot more now. (laughs) (laughs) I think that my credo has been set for a long time. As far as my professional ethic as an engineer, I think that I probably, and I don't know if this is a natural arc anyway, because I have been at it for a long time, but I think that my flexibility in accepting people is probably as as good as it's ever been. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll see people doing really dumb shit. Just, you know, we'll work for a while to get a sound. It's a great example. Drummers are the perfect case in point. It's oh, a really common drummers. thing. We will work sometimes. I have no idea where it comes from. 
with some drummers, whether it's a sense of insecurity or a sense of whatever it may be. But we'll work really hard to get a particular tone on a drum. Tune it, work it, change it, shift mics, move mics, <clears throat> measure your overheads, check for phase correlation, all the stuff that you do to try to get a good drum sound. And then you'll get right there. And right before the take, you'll hear drum keys rattling. And <laughs> there you go. There went all the work that the whole room, the whole band is concentrating with you and the engineer is working with you to get to that point. And then just as like this weird tick, just like, well, I just need to tighten the snare on one side over here a little bit. And I'm like, why? And th th not to single out drummers, people do that with guitar tone, any number of things. Singers will be in the middle of a, of a vocal session and will be doing great. They'll come and they'll have some tea and some honey and they'll do their warm-ups. We'll work for a few hours. We'll take a lunch break. They go eat four pieces of pizza and the session's over. You can't eat pizza in the middle of a vocal <laughs> session. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Their voice is completely different. They're all phlegmy. Why would you do that? I think I'm more accepting of people. You know, they do it for any number of reasons and nobody's doing any of that crap on purpose. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, sometimes a lack of awareness, sometimes inexperience. Sometimes it's just a mechanism. I did a session with a band called Snail in the early 90s. Interestingly, Snail has come back around and is getting some really good reviews for the records that they have continued to make without me. Uh, they're making them in LA and I think their bass player is engineering their stuff now, a guy named Matt Lynch. And he's great. Their drummer had OCD. And so we're doing a session and we need the drummer there at a certain time. I can't remember the exact story, but I think he couldn't get his keys. He had a mechanism for his keys. They needed, he needed to pick them up and put them in his pocket in a certain way. So he was hours late to the session. Hours late. We had to move on and do others. We had to rearrange the whole day. It was because he was standing at his front door, putting down his keys and picking them up and putting them in his pocket in order to feel great to walk out the door right. to get to the session. And he was wildly late. At the time, I was like, dude, are you serious? And now I'm like, I totally get it, buddy. <laughs> I, I, I hear you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. If that's what you need to feel good when you walk out the door to go play a session, which is hard work, more power to you, man. Just give us a call. <laughs> so, do you, so do you think that that is, is a result of being a dad and kind of seeing somebody stumble and grow and figure their shit out? I do. I think that there's an aspect about just having to let things be okay that in the past I've been less patient with. I mean, I don't call people out for that type of thing. And I, I, the session went fine and, and nobody said a thing about it. You know, he explained what was happening and we're, okay, cool, man, it's time to work. I wouldn't pinpoint it and give people a rough ride about it in the past. There's no need to do that. But these days, I think I'm just more accepting of however people need to get where they need to get to be in the right place to come make a record. It's, it's hard. It people hard. have expectations. A whole band has been putting money in a cookie jar for a year and everybody's pitched in. Everybody puts in a couple of grand and it's hard for people to save up a couple of grand to make a record, you know? And then they get here and it may not be going the way that they want it to. You know, the room, once they hear everything mic'd up, might sound different than their rehearsal space did. I mean, I've literally had rhythm sections going like, dude, the, the bass line is not working with the kick drum now that I can finally hear it. And they're like, I've played it that way for four years. What are you talking about? It's funny. It's almost like saving up for a vacation and then you get there and you're like, oh. Or you, oh. Get, you get there and you're sick. You're sick or the hotel <laughs> room sucks. is not what you expected. Right. And, right. and that's... It's raining. Right. It's pouring rain. Yeah. That's really disappointing and really frustrating. You know, I, I don't I don't blame people. And the same thing goes with live shows, you know. I used to be harder on people because if you're a performer, you're getting paid to do the show, you show up and do the show. Mm -hmm. You know, the show must go on, even if you're having a hard day. And I've seen so many things, you know, big life events happen on the road. And they've happened to me as well when I've been in a place where I wasn't able to do anything about anything. You know, sometimes yeah. people need your help. You're in Lithuania, you know, and there's no two ways around it. You know, when somebody throws a queen fit on tour, Axl Rose freaks out because the monitors aren't right. You know, if I remember right, someone gets stomped to death in the crowd because of that. My friend Michael was mixing monitors at that show. He's a really good monitor engineer. He was doing his best. That kind of stuff happens, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you do have a lot of experience on the road. Um, yeah. That live sound experience mixed with studio experience, definitely those two, as, as we've learned through the course of the podcast, just in my experience of talking to other engineers, I don't do live sound. Mm -hmm. I'm scared to death of it. Those two worlds can really complement one another and teach you about 
not only about different personalities and how to handle people, but also it really kind of informs you about what happens in the studio and what happens on the road and how the two can complement one another. You're not so much of a live sound guy these days. Is that right? Nope. Um, you're single dad. Mm-hmm. Our boys went to preschool together. They did, yeah. Uh, which is super cool. And, you, and you, you have an amazing, amazing son. He's a good kid so far. He So far. <laughs> yeah, my, mine's been good so far, too. Yep. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I always like to ask about work-life balance. And you talked about working an eight-hour day, being on point. Yeah. We know how unpredictable this world can be. Mm-hmm. And financially, personally, you know, how long sessions can go. Right. People not paying you. Right. All of that. What's your takeaway from all of it? How do you handle it? How do you keep it so that your personal world with your son is solid with well, all the craziness that can happen in this world, right. in this recording world? Live shows inherently have strict guidelines time-wise. If the band needs to be done at 1130, they generally need to be done by about 1130. They might go a little longer, but then, you know, it's going to take an hour and a half to tear down. So even though you run long hours doing live sound, it's fairly set. You can say that looks like a 15-hour day. And barring some really strange, unforeseen thing, it's generally around a 15-hour day. In the studio, you and every other engineer know that there is never enough time. An eight-hour session can always be a 10-hour session ad infinitum. That goes on forever. Mm -hmm. You know, a mastering session, there's never enough time. It always goes a little extra. Just need one more thing. Or you go right up to when you're, you know, six o'clock or whenever you need to walk out the door. And then you need to burn some refs or whatever it is. That never changes in the studio. I have to find a way to just value myself and my time with my son and really be clear about it. Because if you're a person who can always say, sure, I'll stick around for a quick minute to do that one last thing for you, or it'll only take 20 minutes to whatever it is. I just have to say no to that. You know, I have to say, here we are at 10 o'clock this morning. I got to leave at 730. And that means I'm out the door at 730. And then everybody will always say, well, can you go to late? Can we do this one little thing? I say, no, told you this morning. I'm out the door at 7.30. So even though stuff is not done and we wanted to get more done, I don't know that there's been very many sessions that I've been on where we're wildly more productive than we had imagined. <laughs> so we're like, oh, shit, we There's got an quote. extra day. There's a major quote right there. Right? <laughs> that one's that's a pretty rare session. <laughs> but I just, I have to value it. And also financially, in the past, I have found that it's really alluring in the entertainment industry to want to be part of whatever the cool thing is. Right. I really want to work on this band's record. I really want to do this band's tour, whatever it is. That's intoxicating. I've been fortunate enough, touring-wise, to tour around the world to close to 30 countries with some huge rock stars. That's fun. Yeah. You know, there's no doubt about it. To get into that position, people are willing to compromise and do a lot of things. Some people are willing to work cheap. Some people are willing to stab a friend in the back. Mm-hmm. To get a gig. Early on, I decided to not be a backstabber. I've had my backstabbed a few times and it, it hurts, you know, especially with people you consider to be friends. What I did at some point in my career was I decided to value my work and ask for what I want to get paid in order to feel okay about it at the end of the day. Because if you're doing one of those crazy sessions that's going 10 hours and it's extra long and you said, I'm going to work for 150 bucks a day and the band doesn't have any more money, whatever it is, X, Y, Z. At the end of the day, you go home and you count your money and it was a really long, hard session and you're really tired and you're like, shit, I just worked for $13 an hour and I'm an expert. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I should be working for 40 bucks an hour. Right. I have seen in a lot of people that they're willing to do that. And at points in my career, in order to get a piece of something that I thought was cool, I've done that as well. And at some point I just said, you know, I'm asking for what I'm worth. People treat you with more respect and a sense of responsibility when you talk about the business aspect of what this is. And then that's an important thing. It's like I make records because I like to make records and I end up friends with many of the people that I work with. Many. I, I have a huge community of friends in the music business. And that's great. But still, it's my business. I need to pay my rent. Somewhere or another, I just kind of had an epiphany and I was like, you know, you need to ask for what you're worth and stick to it. And don't chase something, you know, I want to be the tour manager for blah, 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 blah. Who cares? <laughs> Some other good gig will come your way. Take care of yourself. Take care of the people in your life. And in order to do that. Be balanced in it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't try to feed the ego. How does that go for you? I mean, you've got to commute these days and you've got a big family. How? how? Actually, you know, I mean, my commute only happens when I go track. Uh Uh-huh. 
When I mix, I mix at home. You're, making, you're working at home, right? That mixing at home process has allowed me to, you know, doing the podcast, mixing at home, editing at home, doing audio cleanup. Right. It allows me to be, I, I know it can be a derogatory term for some, but it's the Mr. Mom. Oh, absolutely. And I'm the guy that goes to drop the kids off, picks them up from school. I take care of a lot of that because my wife works a corporate job. Right. And she works her ass off. Right. In order to make this work, you know, I have to really bust ass at not only my job, but also this job of helping to take care of yeah. our boys. Yeah, it's it's tough. Yeah. It's it's a haul, but you know what? When I focus on the people and what's helping everybody get done what they need to get done, yeah. I get such a reward out of it. And I also feel like everything seems to fall into place. It's only when my priorities change and I start to focus on things that aren't those people. Right. That's when it gets fucked up. Right. That's exactly right. It's, it's a shiny ring will come along and you're like, hey, I'm chasing this record that I really want to right. be part of. Right. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, cool. I can do 10 days straight. And you're like, no, I, I can't do that. I'm sure you saw it from afar, but when I got involved in that studio mm -hmm. on Mission Street, mm -hmm. I had blinders on. I was like this. Yeah. I just started to not pay attention enough. I was so fixated on making yeah. it work that my family almost fell apart. Yeah. Fortunately, I was able to recover from that, mm -hmm. but it was, it was a close call. That's a learn, right? That's a learning experience there. <laughs> that kicked my ass. Yeah. But it taught me a lot. I wouldn't. I wouldn't change that for the world. But. Of course, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, that's that's a really hard one. I feel like at Santo, I'm trying to set it up in a way so that much as the model of uh, of Tiny Telephone of, of John Vanderslice, he doesn't have to work that much in his studio. Right. He works when he wants to work and when he finds a project that really suits him. And that's fantastic. And that's how I'd like to be here. Mm -hmm. I right now definitely have to work pretty much anything that comes through the door so that I can make my rent. I would like to down the road, make a couple of records a year and make some money on the studio. You know, I feel like I've invested enough into the studio that that's a fair thing to ask. I don't need to be the one who's here working 50, 60 hours a week all the time, as many engineers who own their own places do. Mm -hmm. They're the one person who runs the show and they work their asses off. I'm hoping that that doesn't become what I get here. I'm hoping to pay a little rent and and work not necessarily when I want but less than than a really full-time job that's what I'm hoping for <laughs> that's hey man I mean that, I, I more power to you I, I yeah. hope it works out in that way it's, I do um, too I mean it is a challenging business and finding your place in it and making it work for us individually is that's always just a head scratcher for me yeah and I'm constantly just always trying to like reevaluate like is this working can I can I make this any better right whether it's, you know, my schedule, my rate, right. how I deal with people. Presentation, every, yeah. Figuring out what is really going to work. It's always a, a challenge for me. Well, that's smart on your part just to say some self-reflection is a smart idea. Really step back and say what's worked. You know, you've been doing it a long time now too, and you can say what worked from 10 years ago to five years ago, what's worked well from five years ago till present. If you have enough of an arc to really kind of analyze it. And again, that goes back to the people that have a little bit more of a psychological bent of, of awareness and self-reflection and not just being rigid and here's how I do it. As we kind of wrap up here, mm -hmm. I want to ask you, You've invested a lot of time and money, mm -hmm. and, and this place is beautiful. It's mm, super cool. Thanks. What happens in five years when the lease is up? I can't see myself building another one of these. What I would like to have happen, I would like to find a way to buy this building from the owner. This is the first building that he ever bought. For that reason, he's real attached to this building. He's told me, I really am never going to sell that spot. But it's not entirely clear. He's since bought another building. He's investing a lot of sweat equity in it. He does most of the work himself, and he also participates fully in helping us with this build out. His name's Sam and he's a, he's a really good, solid guy. His needs are what his needs are. And I don't know if they fit exactly what our needs are. I'm hoping that he'll sign another five-year lease, or I'm really hoping that he'll maybe find a better deal real estate wise and need to sell. He got a really good deal on this building. I'm sure that the value of it has increased enormously in the last year and a half. We did the build out and then we're going to pay twice as much for the building as Sam did, but he was in the right place at the right time and made it work. I don't have anything on lock for what's going to happen. Sam is looking out for what his best interest is, which is fair enough. You know, he hasn't said, I'm definitely going to renew you guys in five years, okay. which is now four years. Uh -huh. But that's what I hope for. Okay. You know, I feel like we built a, a nice place and I'd like to see it keep rolling. I don't normally uh, fixate on gear questions too mm -hmm. much, but the piece Me right either. behind you... <laughs> 
What is that? Uh-huh. With the little speaker and the VU meter? It's it's called the MagnaCorder, and it's made by a company, a U.S. company called MagnaCord, which made tape machines. They made a lot of tape machines for industrial purposes okay. where they needed to do recording. It's super cool. Like this little Bakelite thing right here has got these little Art Deco treatments around it. It's so cool. And it's a single channel mic pre. It was a preamp that ran to a mono tape machine. Okay, and that was the playback speaker. And that's the playback speaker to monitor what's going through the chain to the tape machine. Got it. And it it still works. You can plug a mic into the back of this thing and click the switch, and (laughs) there's the volume for your... It's outrageous. Oh, I love that. And it's a class AB tube, gritty sounding, you know, same, pretty much same thing as the 1567A. And it's just got its own character. It worked just like it sits. So we haven't retubed it or recapped it. We just leave it alone and throw it on a guitar and it sounds awesome. (laughs) Just don't mess with it. Yeah. Yeah. We've got some kind of weird esoteric stuff and that's one of them. That's, this is one of my favorite pieces in the whole thing. It's just so unbelievably clean. And what's behind the name Santo? Oh, he's uh, the Mexican wrestling legend. In the world of masked Mexican wrestling, uh-huh. Santo is sort of like the most, he's the Hulk Hogan. Okay. Uh, I don't know that he's still alive, but he is the most famous of masked Mexican wrestlers. My partner Christopher brought that name to the table. I think he had already named his spot before we partnered up and I moved in my my gear. He was already calling it Santo. And, and it's great because there's just so much wonderful imagery of that Mexican wrestling guy. Well, right on. This has been awesome, Josh. Yeah. It's great to see you. Great to hang out. Love the place. It's it's just amazing. Come make a record, man. Yeah, I'll come make a record. (laughs) I definitely will come make a record, yeah. Well, thanks, man. Yes. Good to see you. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, you caught me with a mouthful of coffee. There it is, Josh Roberts on the Working Class Audio Podcast over at Santo Studios. I hope you enjoyed that. So uh, we're not quite out of time, but uh, just a couple things to mention once again. Uh, NAM show, Vocal Booth, Thursday, uh, that is on the 21st. And you want to come by and see me interview Mr. Jim Scott, who's got just an incredible resume. So I'll be there, and I think that, that uh, that'll be a load of fun. Um, let's see, what else? A couple favors to ask. Um, spread the word. We really appreciate that when when you know people come and discover the podcast and, 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 the, and the YouTube channel now. So spread the word. Tell your friends to like us on Facebook. Uh, go on uh, Twitter and follow us. And uh, yeah, come on over, like us, subscribe, do all that social media stuff that really helps spread the word about uh, the show. And we'd really appreciate that. So that said, we are out of time and I and I have to get going here. But uh, just want to make sure that you know that our music is provided by Cliff Truesdale and our voiceover at the beginning, that is Mr. Chuck Smith. Cole Williams is helping us out with social media and some back-end audio support. We've got to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, and Focal Monitors. And as usual, want to thank you. That's it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.